I pulled an old book from my bookshelf recently, A River Runs Through It by Malcolm McLean. This is the book made famous because Robert Redford turned it into an award-winning movie. It's about a Presbyterian minister and his two sons, their lives, their losses, their struggles, their hopes, their hurts. And much of the story circles around fly fishing in various rivers in Montana, hence the title, A River Runs Through It. There was a page marked in my book. This is one of the ways that I try to note that somewhere on that page was a worthy insight, worthy enough to revisit at times. And at this particular place in the book, the older of the two sons was fishing by himself out on a river trying to land a big blackback trout. It was very awkward, this spot in the river where he was fishing. It was demanding real skill in casting. He says, how could I cast into that spot? And if I could cast into that spot, how could I keep my balance to catch a fish there? But Norman knew right where the fish was in that spot and right where he needed to cast. And as he looked out at the river, he writes, a blackback rose and sank in the foam. In fact, I imagined I saw the spines of his dorsal fin and I thought to myself, he couldn't be so big that I could see his fins. And then he adds, you wouldn't even have seen the fish in all the foam if you hadn't first thought it would be there. That's why I tagged the page. In much of life, when we can envision things, we see things, and then we can accomplish things. So if some of you are more cerebral than a fishing story, and you like words and riddles, and many of you know I do, here's another way of saying this. Epistemology models ontology. John Polkinghorne taught me that. That means something like this. What we believe to be so, ontology, has a great impact on what we know, epistemology. And then what we see, and then what we do. So if we believe there's a fish there in that foam, then we can probably see the fish, and then we might even catch the fish. Epistemology models ontology. So, you know, faith and living by faith is kind of like that. What we believe affects how we see things and then what we do and then how we live. As we seek to live by faith and as we seek to grow in discipleship, we strive to root our lives in God's love and live with love. We seek to remember at the baptismal font that God's promises cover our lives. We're showered with grace. We're given hope. That's meant to shape how we live. No matter what happens to us, no matter what comes our way, we, seek stri we continue to strive to live into those promises. Those promises enable us to live a certain way. 
Epistemology models ontology. One theologian put it this way, we as people of faith actually live our lives on a wager. We believe that God is real. We believe that our lives belong to God. We can't prove it. Sometimes we may even doubt it, but we bet. We wager that Christ is Lord, that Christ was raised from the dead, that God holds us forever, and this shapes our lives. What we believe to be so affects what we know and then what we do. Epistemology models ontology. Here's how Jesus put it. Abide with me as I abide in you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind, and if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. See, Paul's life has a certain framework. Because of his faith, he presses on. He uses that phrase two different times in this short passage. He says, I press on toward the goal because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Press on means to move swiftly in order to reach a goal. It has great force and fervency. Press on. This is most helpful to me. It's most helpful to me because it's about the goal and it's about God. It's about what Paul envisions to be true about his life and therefore that shapes his life, pressing on toward the goal. Now, a lot of us are dealing with a lot of hard things. We are. Some of us have great an uncertain change happening in our lives. Some of us face real heartache and loss in these days. Some of us feel the constant burden of work and balancing parenthood, raising children and caring for our parents. Or deep frustration about larger, complex issues that never seem to go away. We're dealing with a lot. Paul reminds us, press on. Press on because Christ Jesus has made you his own. We seek to live with faith. We seek to live with fortitude. We seek to live with courage and hope. What we believe to be so shapes how we live, shapes how we love with faith and hope. Epistemology models ontology. 
There are four words in the sermon title today. Grace, gratitude, goodness, and generosity. I think these words, I hope these words help us press on. Grace can sound like a churchy word. In Kathleen Norris's book, subtitled The Vocabulary of Faith, she says this about grace. It's when you know God is surely in this place. That's grace. When God is surely in this place, things are different. In fact, we're different. And we see differently. And we act differently. And we think differently. When God is in this place, we become different kind of people. Jesus embodied grace. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as I abide in you. That's grace. That's grace that's meant to change everything. Abide, abide, be different. Covered with grace, living with God's grace over us, under us, around us, living with God's presence, gratitude follows. One writer puts it like this. Gratitude follows ought to be the grammar of our lives. Think about that. The grammar of our lives. Gratitude. Grammar is the structure and foundation of language. It's meant to be in place all the time. Grammar, it's what allows sentences to make sense and thoughts to have coherency. Without grammar, it's very difficult to communicate and with gratitude as the grammar of our lives, which would link us to one another, link us to God more deeply. We would have a syntax. We would have a structure to our lives that really would sustain us. Gratitude as the grammar of our lives. You know what many people are recognizing and affirming in these days as the structure and the syntax of life? not gratitude it's fear 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 drives us away from faith drives us away from compassion drives us away from each other and fear drives us crazy we're increasingly afraid about so many things our health our children our decisions our security can we pay the bills Can we make ends meet? We're afraid of getting the latest strand of flu. We're afraid of getting cancer. We're afraid of having a stroke. We're afraid of dying. We're afraid of rising temperatures and declining income. We're afraid of rising oceans and declining resources. We're afraid about the next president. We're afraid about terrorism. We're afraid about so many things. And while a little bit of fear may keep us alert and help us stay alive, when it dominates our hearts, when it dominates our minds, it leads us to ruin because fear replaces grace and fear replaces gratitude and it pushes us down. And before long, we're not living by the Spirit, we're living by the flesh. And that's a problem. Goodness is meant to flow from grace and gratitude, not fear, goodness. Buckminster Fuller put forth the idea that the purpose of people on earth is to counteract the tide of entropy. The idea that things are always falling apart. That's entropy. People exist, he says, to put things back together. 
to do good, people build bridges. People build cities. People build roads. People write music. People write drama and write constitutions. And all of this is putting the world back together. People have ideas and they figure out medicines and cures. And people help and people hold and people hope. And that is what helps us in the face of all things. The universe needs good people filled with goodness. And God calls us to be good people spreading goodness. And when people are good, people are generous. This is how we press on, seeking to trust God and spread goodness and generosity. So grace and gratitude and goodness and generosity, the way of the Christian life, pressing on. And as we press on, we envision new things. Today, as you've heard, we are launching our three-year capital campaign, Shining the Light of God's Grace. That's the title of it. This campaign is really about grace and gratitude and goodness and generosity. You'll be hearing more about this in this festive celebration that we have following worship today. This exciting campaign has been percolating for several years. The session voted recently to move forward, building on our rich heritage of wonderful space, a wonderful location, and a deep calling in this city. Building on our rich heritage and seeking to fulfill our important mission in this city and across the world. We've been showered by grace. We seek to live with sincere gratitude, with goodness and generosity. In fact, we're seeking to raise $5 million in the next three years. These funds will enable and empower us to do so much to shine the light of God's grace. We have big goals. We have a big campaign. But it's less about the money It's more about our hearts. It's less about a building. It's more about how we might be good and generous, grateful, with lots of goodness. It's more about serving a very big and awesome God. All of this extends beyond our regular annual mission that we cover with our annual budget all the ministry that we are doing we need to keep doing and we want to continue to do that so this capital campaign is above and beyond we carry on above and beyond beyond our regular programs and activities and outreach about 25 years ago when ginger and i first began serving in the church we decided that if we were going to give effective leadership to congregations we needed we knew we needed to take seriously the biblical invitation to tithe. So together, when we received our first call in Pickens, South Carolina, we committed to tithing our salary to the ongoing work of the church, 10% of our salary to the ongoing work of the church. This has not always been easy, but it has been our commitment. And as much as anything else, that commitment to tithe has been an instrument in strengthening our faith, in reminding us that our hearts are to trust God 
in reminding us that we live by grace and not by works. This commitment to tithing has stretched us and challenged us and blessed us, but it's been our commitment. And it's not because I'm the pastor or we serve in the church or what we're supposed to do. It's because this is where we want our hearts to be, our life to be grateful, generous, spreading God's goodness and grace in the world. So now, with the capital campaign, we've been confronted again with what we might do. How do we respond? Our giving, how we give, matters so much to us, and it matters to God. We know it's a reflection of our faith, a reflection of our heart for God's work. So we're looking to sacrifice further, Ginger and I are. We want to give generously. We want to give sacrificially. We want to give prayerfully and faithfully to this capital campaign And we do not have lots of assets stashed away. We have too many bills to pay, actually. We have plans for the future. We have demands from our children, like we all do. And we know we need to maintain our tithe to the regular giving, the mission of this church. Yet this is a historic moment for this congregation. So after prayers and discussion, Ginger and I have come up with a plan about this capital campaign. In addition to our regular tithe, we're committing across the next three years to give weekly to this effort, and we plan to give $100 a week to this campaign for second, shining the light of God's grace. This is not $100 on some weeks. We're going to do this every week for the next three years as we continue to tithe to the church's regular mission budget as well. I share these intimate personal decisions, only hoping to be helpful to you. I know that when I learn about the faithfulness of others, it has inspired my own faith. Many of you inspire me with your generosity. Many of you have touched my life with your sacrifice, your goodness, your grace, your commitments. Many of you live with such devotion and faith. Some of you may not be able to do what Ginger and I are striving to do. I realize that. Some of you can do much more than that. But we're all called. And we're all blessed. And we're all covered with God's love. And we're all invited to give sacrificially and sincerely and prayerfully and gratefully and generously. Because it's about our hearts. And it's about our commitments. And all of that is important to God. So I hope you will approach this campaign with prayers and great care, reflecting on all of God's grace at work in your life and your call to be part of this gracious, generous, good community serving in this city and as far as we can go. This, friends, is an historic moment for us as we carry on in Christ's work. This past week I had a painful phone call from a good friend who is a pastor in our denomination who is struggling seriously with his call in a certain place, in a certain congregation. He said that he felt beaten down and worn out by his life and ministry. His preaching, he said, his Bible studies, his leadership, his care was leaving him totally drained and burdened. 
he met with a member of his church in the midst of all this, and the member of his church stated something that changed everything for this pastor. The pastor was doing all this work to build the church, to make disciples, to serve God. The member told him that the people of that church, what they really wanted was not to be the church. The people just wanted a great music on Sunday. They wanted a short, inspirational message, but they wanted nothing changed about their lives and about their community. Nothing changed. They didn't want to be disciples. They didn't want to be the church. They wanted to be left alone. My friend knew it was time for him to leave, and he's working on leaving. He couldn't serve a church that had no interest in being a church. What excites me, my beloved community here, what inspires me, dear folks of Second Presbyterian, you want to be the church. You are passionate, you are faithful, you are devoted, and we are seeking to love and serve God in this city and as far as we can go. Thank you. I thank God for you. By God's grace and spirit, we press on together. We have important work to do, striving to be the passionate, loving, good people that God has called us to be, serving in this city, shining the light of God's grace as bright as we can here and throughout the world. May God bless us. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, to turn from you is to fall. To turn to you is to rise, to stand with you, to serve you. Wow, that's to abide, abide forever. We seek that way, following Christ. Amen.